Okay, let's get this web conference underway. Tēnā katoa katoa, greetings everyone, haere mai, and welcome to the Kōkākō field trip. This field trip is supported by the Ministry of Education, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, the Porongia Te Aroaro Akahu Restoration Society, and the Waipa District Council. Lots of sponsors, and it's a sign of lots of people working together to all try and help the likes of our kōkākō, which is really special. And I'd like to introduce you to our expert today, who is Claire from the Restoration Society. And you can find out more about her if you have a look at her profile on the website. And she's done a ton of work for quite a few years now on kōkākō and restoring Mount Parongia. And you can find out more about that on the videos, which will be online for you tomorrow and of course you can check out the videos from yesterday where we managed to catch kōkākō and bring them all the way from Puriora Forest to Porongia. And right now we are at Porongia School. We have been uh, talking to some students about what it means to live uh, next to Porongia, the Maunga, and they were lucky enough to be involved in a release of birds on Friday so they had a chat to us about what that was like. Um, so they've lent us their office to do this web conference in this afternoon. And it's a pretty grey day here in Porongia. We have seen patches of sun, but we started the day at Puriora Forest and then we've driven round to uh, Porongia, about an hour and a half's drive. And it's good to be able to talk to you from Porongia School this afternoon. So welcome along to our speaking school this afternoon. We've got... North Street School with us. Welcome along. Great to have you with us. Bob has so been looking forward to talking to you guys, but then he forgot and he's gone off and chased some kōkākō because he was seeing those just before and he's left Maya all alone to uh, say hello during the, the Learns Web conference this afternoon. So Bob will be back shortly, I'm sure, and he'll have tales to tell about his experience with kōkākō because yesterday he wasn't allowed too close to them because they were having their health check and we didn't want to spook them before we released them on Mount Parongia. But don't panic, Bob will be back with us very shortly and he, I'm sure is going to be sad that he's missed this web conference. The timing just hasn't quite ended up quite right this afternoon. We've had a few challenges on this field trip with delays and early starts and all sorts of challenges, but it's been well worthwhile because we got to see Kokako. And not many people get to do that. So, getting on with the web conference. Questions this afternoon. North Street School, if you can remember to say your name so we know who we're talking to. Uh, just your first name's good. And we'll get started. Can we have question number one, please? Hi, um, I'm Charlotte and I wanted to ask, is there a plan to start a breeding program for the Kōkākō in the South Island? Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte. Well, um, the South Island Kokako hasn't been seen for many years. Well, not a confirmed sighting. So at the moment, there isn't a, um, a breeding program planned for it. Um, what they'd really like to do is confirm whether or not there are still some um, surviving down there. Um, one of the reasons why they, why they might have uh, died out faster than in the North Island is the South Island habitat is mostly beach forest. And that means that you get a higher density of predators there. And so 
it would have been easier um, for them to be preyed on and, and therefore they would have died out faster. Um, I think if they were found that, yes, definitely, uh, predator control would be started straight away and then I think the likelihood would be uh, they'd be transferred to um, a pest-free island where there'd be no chance of them losing any chicks or anything because they'd be absolutely so precious and they'd be there in the hope that numbers would build. Yeah, a bit of a sad story really. And who knows whether they do still exist or not. Um, lots of people, well, a few people, have thought that they've heard them because mm -hmm. often kōkako are heard rather than seen. But yeah, there might be the possibility. And I think the black robin got down to something like seven birds or something really really low and that's been able to through a breeding program um, has survived so who knows I guess the best message here is that if we can control predators we can give these birds a chance so regardless of whether we know they exist or not we all have a bit of a responsibility there to try and make the environment as good as we can for these these birds that's a great question to, to start with Charlotte thank you and we'll move to your next question now, please. Hi, I'm Jane, and I wanted to ask, yeah. why did the Kōkāko become extinct in the South Island, but not the North Island? I've a little bit about that, but Claire, yeah. anything you want to add? No, no, I think that um, the way the forest is structured in the South Island, you don't get the hiding places that the North Island forest provides for birds. Like, I don't know if you've been walking um, around like Mount Pirongi, which I'm, I'm familiar with, but you get ferns at the bottom, then you get low shrubs, then you might get those climbing um, vines or lianes or something like that. And then you get clumps of um, perching plants or epiphytes in the big branches and then you get the canopy and all of those layers in the North Island forests provide a lot of hiding places for the birds when they're nesting or, or at other times and so they they do actually get more protection from predators than the in the South Island where you've got beech forest and you just don't get that sort of undergrowth in the beech forest it's much more open and I'm, af I'm afraid it's just counted against the South Island kōkāko. Mm. And of course there is some podocarp forest in the South Island, but not nearly as much as beach forest. And I do a bit of tramping and climbing and things. And I know that when I have to travel through beach forest, go for a bit of a walk, it's much easier than going through podocarp forest where you have to sort of try and get through all the undergrowth and it takes a really long time and it's hard work. Whereas beach forest is a lot easier to travel through so you could see why predators could move around a lot easier and find birds in that kind of forest. Thanks Jade, and question number three now please. Yeah. Why do Europeans call the kōkāko the blue wattle or orange crow? Crow. Crow. Wattled or orange wattled crow. Good question. It doesn't sound nearly as good as kōkāko. No, I think kōkāko is a lot nicer and, and someone said to me it's an onomatopoeia word i don't know if you know what that means but it means the sound that it makes is the same as its name now um you've mentioned the blue wattles and the orange wattles okay so those are um for the north island kōkāko those are those those blue teardrops that are on the side of the uh, beak and um 
Yeah, you'll, you'll see that um, uh, in the South Island uh, Kōkako, they're orange, and so they're called wattles, all right? But the crow is the tricky one. So it might, I think Europeans saw the bird and they thought it looked like a crow, but in actual fact, it is not part of the crow family, okay? So we much prefer people in New Zealand to call them kōkako. Yeah, beautiful name, kōkako. And it sounds quite musical, a lot like their call, which we heard when we were trying to attract them into the net. We played it on um, a system where there was speakers up in the tree and it enticed the birds into the net so that they could be caught and taken to Parangia to try and establish a whole new population. So very cool. And that brings us to question number four, please. Chase, um, how many kōkako are left in New Zealand? Kia ora, Chase. Okay, Chase, well, that's a really good question. Um, at the moment, we think there are 1,600 pairs of North Island kōkako, um, and, and as far as we know, as we've mentioned, we don't know how many there are left of the South Island ones. So to have 1,600 pairs is actually a really big deal for the kōkākau at the moment because back in 1999, so I, I guess that's almost 20 years ago, there, there were only 400 pairs. And so a lot of hard work's been done by people caring about birds, doing pest control, uh, captive breeding programs, things like that, to let those numbers build. And I think they set a goal that they'd like to get to 2,000 pairs. And that would sort of put the bird, you know, sort of out of the classification of, of declining or at risk. And it is a really good story. Often we hear about all the bad stories about how all our native birds are suffering and how our environment is suffering and all the rest of it. So it's really nice to hear that we can make a difference and getting rid of predators can make a huge difference for the likes of Kōkāko but also all the other native birds as well, mm -hmm. and the forest itself, because it doesn't get nibbled away at by possums and browsed by deer and goats and all those other problem species that have been controlled on the likes of Parongia. Thanks, Chase. Question number five now, please. Hello, I'm Logan Simons. Um, my question is, would the kōkāko develop to be flightless? Thanks, Logan. Yeah, I think you've been thinking hard about this because you've seen that the kōkāko isn't a particularly strong flyer. Um, when it's sort of moving around in the bush, it's more likely to just hop from branch to branch. But the thing with um, evolution um, is that it doesn't necessarily go in a particular direction. You know, So at the moment, we can look at the bird and think, oh, you're not using your, your wings very much. You'll end up flightless. But we can't really say that. Um, I think the consensus is that um, it's probably over time will become um, yeah, less, less, less use of its wings and rely more on its legs, but it doesn't necessarily mean that would become absolutely flightless. Yeah, and I guess it's one thing that we forget that these changes in species, their adaptations, their evolution takes a really, really, really long time. And if we go and change things really quickly, like chopping down all the forest or bringing in the likes of possums and stoats and rats and all those sort of things that never used to be here, our poor old birds just can't adapt. They can't change quick enough. So that 
That is a really good question. Thank you, Logan. And question number six now, please. Hi, I'm, hi, I'm Isabel. Hi, I'm Isabel. My question is, are there more bird predators in the South Island compared to the North Island? Thanks, Isabel. Yeah, thanks, Isabel. There's not necessarily the, the um, more predators in terms of the kinds or the species of predators, but the Beach forests in the South Island um, provide a lot of food, especially for rats. And so um, I don't know if you've heard of mast years and things like that, where the trees themselves produce lots and lots of, of seed and, and possibly from that comes a lot of nectar from the, um, actually I can't remember what, the, you know, that, that sort of um, the, the, the little insects that, that feed on the seeds, they exude that sort of oh, um, like the, yeah, um, the honey the kind black, of yeah. yeah, that's right. Honeydew yeah. stuff on yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah. So and, and that's also a source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so because of that, um, all those food sources, that the number of predators in the South Island forests are far higher than in the North Island ones. So as I've mentioned before, I think that's that's what's taken its toll against um, the, the South Island kōkako. Mm, and it would be interesting to know how much forest cover there is in the North Island compared to the South Island. I haven't done any research on that and it might be something that you want to find out because I suspect with all the mountains in the South Island, there's still a lot of forest out there. So if we could reduce the number of predators, mm. we could create predators for mm. our native uh, plants and animals. might be something that you could look into. And now up to question number seven, please. I'm Charlotte, and um, my other question is, are there any kōkako on Stewart Island? Um, as far as I know, there, there aren't any at all on Stewart Island, but... Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting that question, but I've never heard of them down there. I suspect because there's none in the South Island, there's probably none in the North, uh, in Stewart Island. I think that Dayton was mentioning too, actually, that he doesn't think they do terribly well in the really colder climates. Yeah, so that would have been a factor too, I think. Mm, yeah, interesting. Something you could do perhaps more research on it. There might be some fossil evidence or mm. something like that that suggests that perhaps... Uh, South Island Kōkako or on Stewart Island, I don't know. Might be something you can find out. Mm. And your next question now, please. Hi, I'm Tori. We live in Fielding, which is the Manawatu. How can we get Kōkako here? Wow, that's a really great aspiration, I think. Um, so first of all, you'd need to go and talk to a group of people they call the Kōkako Specialist Group. So that, that's a group of scientists and other, other technical people that um, work to, to bring back the numbers of Kōkako. And um, you'd have to listen to what the requirements would be. And like that's what uh, the Pirongia Group had to do. And, and one of the key things was you need to have 2,000 hectares of predator-free habitat that's, that's got really good food for kōkako. So you live in the Manawatu, 
Um, you should look at what native forests you've got around you, like I think you've got the Tararuas and the Ruahines, and you should see whether or not there's groups there already that are doing pest control and find out what the, you know, does it cover 2,000 hectares yet? Um, like we started at 1,000, we're planning to expand if we need to. Um, and that would be a great starting point. And then they might love to hear um, from schools like you who are wanting to, to see things happen and, and, and get something moving. I do think too, you've got um, Mount Bruce Pukaka also um, in your area. Now they've got a captive breeding program and I, I know they've um, got some hukaka, I think. Um, but I think that would be a really good um, group to talk to as well and see how you could work together to achieve that. Mm. Yeah, fabulous to hear that you would like to do that. And it is something that when people work together, they can make happen. And I know of lots of schools that are helping with predator control and planting native plants and keeping rubbish out of their environment, checking on the water quality, doing all sorts of things to try and make their place a better place for not only kōkako, but other native species and native plants. Great stuff. Thanks, Corey. And your next question now, please. Hi, I'm Jade, and I want to ask, why are, they, why are the kōkako more often than her? Oh, okay, Jade. Yeah, so you're saying that, um, yeah, why is it that it's more likely that they'd be um, heard than seen? Yeah, so the reason is that so where they choose to live, they spend most of their time right at the top of, of the, the tall trees in the forest. So that might be um, 30 or 40 metres off the ground. So generally people are walking through the bush at ground level and they, um, they might um, be looking up into the trees um, but of course, as I've mentioned before, there's lots of branches, there's low shrubs, there's ferns, there's, there's creepers and climbers and things like that. And all those things work to obstruct your view. Okay, so if you're trying to see right to the top of the canopy, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult. And, and so that's why it's much more likely that you'll hear that lovely, that lovely song, yeah, than actually see them themselves. And question number... Nine now, please. Nine. Hi, Maya. Um, what have been your biggest threats or problems with trying to help the kōkaka survive? Thanks, Maya. Yeah. Well, I think, I think without a doubt, uh, Maya, it's been the predators, the rats and the possums. Um, if you can't keep on top of those, um, what we find is that um, when... when Kōkākoa nesting, it's the, the, the female that stays on the nest all the time and she keeps the eggs warm until they're ready to hatch. And the male is the one that's, that's going to and from the nest, going and getting food to feed the female. And then um, mainly, I think both of them feed the, the chicks, but it's during the nesting time when the female is there on the nest. She can't um, defend the eggs against... Um, the, the rats and the possums very well and um, I think possums can also kill the, the, the adult female and then we have um, mustelids like stoats and weasels and ferrets and, and they can kill the, the chicks and, and the adults so unfortunately um, 
if you don't get predator control, I think um, it's it's probably something like um, eight or twelve percent of nests are successful, and and so for any breeding season, you might be losing fifteen percent of all your females, and that can't be sustained only over any length of time, and and what happens is um, the population suddenly, well, not suddenly, but it turns out that there's only males left and then they can't breed successfully anyway. And um, so, yes, the number one problem has been predators. Yeah, but it's it's something that can be turned around with a lot of hard work, um, bait stations, traps, um, people working together, you can reduce the number of yeah, predators. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and the good thing too is that that's the kind of thing that... that Communities can do, you know, volunteers, you know, um, doc and and other and other specialists or land care people, you know, they can help you design the the pest control that needs to be done. And then it's a case of getting people together, uh, like on Mount Prongia, we do it on a Saturday morning usually, um, or you could um, do it in your spare time. Um, and and just when the best time to do it is when when the birds are breeding, so over the spring. And, and you can make a really big difference because that means those nests are successful and you've got young, young, young birds growing up and, and becoming yeah, part of the adult population. Mm, and I like this next question. Question number 10, please. Um, hi, I'm Shirley. Would you like us to run a social to help raise money to save these birds, or do you get funding for this? <laughs> thanks, Shirley. Yeah, thanks, Shirley. I love your question, and uh, we'd love it if, if schools would fundraise for us because every little bit helps. Um, we've had, we have had schools do fundraisers for, for us, um, apart from sausage sizzles. sizzles. Some, some of them have, have put on productions actually and donated their proceeds you know, from, from the production um, door takings to us. Um, but that, those kind of fundraisers only do make a small part of the whole overall cost. And we do generally get most of our money from grants um, we got grants for the Kurongia project from the regional council here and and also from special funds that, that, that are concerned with environmental projects like the Pacific Development and Conservation Fund. Yeah, and we've also had local families and our local marae who've given us money as well so that we could bring these birds back. Mm, but every little bit counts, so well done for thinking of the Kōkako and the Restoration Society, and if you'd like to put a sausage sizzle on or anything like that, mm. absolutely go for it. It would be lovely to yeah, receive love it. your Thanks. help. And who knows, one day you too might be able to come to Parongia, and hopefully with all the work that the society has done, you might see a Kōkako, or you might hear one, which would be really cool. So thank you very much, North Street School. Apologies for Bob's absence. Naughty boy went rushing off into the bush and now he's in Pirioro instead of Porongia. But hopefully he'll make his way back for tomorrow. <laughs> Naughty Bob. Um, and it's been wonderful to talk to you this afternoon. Quality questions as always. And we really do love you participating in our field trips. So well done. And well done to our listening schools as well. We can say a big goodbye at the end, but in the meantime, I know it's only a few minutes until the bell, 
but if you've got other questions, we'll open up our chat window. And I do know that there was a question yesterday, I think it was from North, North Street School, and they asked if Kōkākō have different personalities, different birds have different personalities. And um, certainly from yesterday, it, it looks like they do. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and while Dave was still with us yesterday, he, he, he absolutely agreed with it. He said, yes, definitely. And when he's taking these birds out of the nets and, and trying to do his health checks and, and getting the banding done and all that, each bird is completely different to another and, and some of them will be docile and, and sit quietly and be um, reasonably calm and all that. And others will get upset and get quite aggressive. Um, I've seen them being pecked at times. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so I guess it shows that, that birds are a little bit like us. Yeah, we're, we're all individuals. Yeah, we're all precious in our own way. Yeah, and I think for those that work with birds, it's, it's really enjoyable to, to see those different personalities. Yeah, it was very cool yesterday seeing the different birds. I think one was a male. We we worked out as best we could that one was a male and one was a female. And one was a lot more squawky than the other <laughs> and um, picked it Dave a lot more, um, less patient, I think. And it was really funny because um, we, we try to reduce the stress on the birds when we're doing something like a translocation and the experts had with them a banana because... Kōkākō really like banana, really which is agree. unusual yeah. because, of course, in the wild, these wild birds, they've never tasted a banana before. But there was one bird there and it was, didn't want the banana, no, no, don't know what this is, don't know what this is, but put some of it on its beak. I was like, oh, actually, that's quite nice. And started <laughs> yeah. nibbling away at it and, and found that he was, yeah. Yeah, and that's a different personality a too, isn't it? People yeah. that like to try different foods and others that, that know they stick to what they used to. Yeah. <laughs> so who would have thought Kokako love banana? So there you go, different personalities for different birds, just like people. Um, and we've got a question here from Ethan. We've talked a little bit about it during the web conference this afternoon, and there's certainly going to be a video online for you tomorrow about this. But we've talked lots about predators. What have you actually done to control them, Claire? That's from yeah, Ethan. yeah, different methods of controlling predators, Ethan. Yeah, that's a really um, deep question. Um, so you can um, poison them so that they'll so they eat something out of a bait station and, and that will eventually kill them. And you can trap them. Um, and so there's quite a variety of traps. There's traps that need to be checked every day um, because even though we are trying to kill these animals, it still has to be done humanely. And if you've got a trap that is going to um, try and kill it, the animal that triggers it. Sometimes it doesn't always kill it. And so those traps have to be checked really regularly because it would be awful to have an animal that's say got its leg caught or something, or even just its tail caught in the trap and it can't get away and it, it's stuck there, you know, for days or something. So there's, there's rules about if you're using traps, how frequently they have to be checked. Um, yeah. And so, um, I think that's the big thing about whether or not choosing whether or not you do trapping or using bait stations. And then you might have heard of a new development where, with a self-resetting trap, and that's one that doesn't have to be checked so regularly because it doesn't sort of snap and hold part of the animal or um, yeah, lot, lot, uh, in, in the trap. 
so so that um, it's stuck but not killed. Um, the self-resetting traps will always kill the animal, and they also don't have to be um, sort of the, the dead animal removed from the trap. It, it, it removes itself automatically, and so it's available to um, get another predator. And so, so that's an, a new technology that's developing at the moment, and, and there's, there's a lot of interest in that. But, but those are the two main methods, I think, trapping and, um, and bait stations with poison. Yeah. Very good. And a question here. How come the North Island and South Island Kōkākō have different coloured wattles? Okay, well, I'm not, not sure if anyone knows the true answer to that, but I think it's connected with evolution. And we touched on that um, in an earlier question. So the, 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 the animal that we see, um, or the bird that we see today, is the product of many millions of years of gradual little changes over time. And those changes are made in response to their environment generally. And so I think the answer is something like, there would have been a benefit to birds in the South Island to have orange wattles. Um, we can't say what that is now because, you know, South Island's changed. We don't know what other animals were there at the time or particular plants or even pathogens, you know, bacteria, you know, it, it, we don't know. But it's probably, you know, due to evolution, there would have been a benefit to those birds in the South Island having orange wattles or in the North Island having blue wattles. But it's, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a good chance for you to use your imagination as to what might, um, what circumstances might have actually produced that. Mm. And there's a question here from the Thompson twins. Have people ever eaten kōkākō? Yes, well, not that I'm aware of. Um, in fact, this would be a really good question to ask um, local iwi. Um, like, we know that other native birds were eaten, you know, the moa were eaten and um, kiruru were eaten and things like that. I I, ha I have heard that the kōkākō was seen as more of a sacred bird, and so I'm not sure if it would have been eaten. Yeah, but I, I can't answer that with any certainty, and perhaps it's a it's an answer that a question that should be asked of, of mm. iwi. And we are meeting with iwi tomorrow, so we'll be able to ask that. I did a bit of research on this before the field trip, and um, I think... Māori throughout New Zealand would eat a lot of things that we don't consider edible now because they were, you know, trying to survive and live off the land. And I think on occasion some Māori in some areas may have eaten kōkākō, but I don't oh, okay. think they were particularly nice to eat. Oh, okay. So I don't know that they were eaten there often. And mm. then in some other areas they were considered as very sacred, mm. so they weren't eaten in those areas either. So I think it does depend on where, where you're from. Mm. Um, but that's certainly something you could do some more research on. Um, we've got lots of questions about Bob. Mm. This is when Shelley has to admit that this isn't Maya. This is an imposter because there's probably more Kias around than there are Bobs. And this is a friend of Purangia School, so it's not Maya, it's standing in for Maya because both Maya and Bob are in a tree in Puriora Forest. <laughs> because we did a video there and we were checking out what Kokako eat and those guys were so busy looking at the food that they got left behind. 
but it's okay because Dave is working there and he's going to pick them up for us. And it's quite a long drive between <laughs> Piriora Forest and Porongia. So we're hoping that Bob gets back for tomorrow, but he's off on his own adventure <laughs> at the moment with, with the real Maya. So he's got company, but we promise we'll get Bob back to you safely. And I'm sure we have lots of tales to tell. So sorry about that North Street School. Very sorry. But Bob is having a good time, I'm sure. All right, we've got time for a couple more questions. Where are we? How do you make sure that birds don't get poisoned or trapped? Because I know that is a bit of a problem for the likes of the Kia yeah. and the South Island. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that we've got to be really careful with. And a lot of people have done heaps of work to make sure that whatever method we're using, it's actually going to be targeting only those species that we want to kill. And it's not going to accidentally kill the things we might be trying to protect. So um, I'll start with the bait stations. Um, I think you'll see some photos of bait stations um, on, on the website and that. And they're designed in a, in a special way so, so that, the say, the birds that, that are in the forest where we've got the bait stations can't get into them. And so only rats and possums can get into them. And so that means that there's no likelihood that, that um, will kill something that's not meant to be killed. Yeah. With traps... So it depends where you put the trap as to uh, if it's a trap where, where it's got a mechanism that's triggered if, if an animal walks on it. And so some traps aren't used where weka might be, you know, or kiwi, you know, I guess, you know. So, so I know that if they're using traps where you've got ground-dwelling birds, they, they won't put them on the, on the forest floor. They might put them a little way up um, the trunks of trees yeah and so it means that again you're you're removing yeah the the likelihood that um, a non-target species is is going to get killed yeah and then with the self-resetting ones they use a lure and that means that only those um, animals that might like to eat for instance protein or fat yeah um, are the ones that's going to put their head inside this space where where the trap's going to work, yeah, and so they're not going to kill other things. Yeah, very good question, because cheeky Kia have been known to not only get trapped in traps sometimes before a lot of thought was put into how the traps are designed, but there was a story that we heard from, from Doc staff on one field trip where Kia would come along and they would get inside the trap with a stick. They'd poke the stick inside the trap so they wouldn't get in it themselves. Oh, and they'd really? set the trap off. <laughs> and they'd obviously watch this dock worker setting up all the traps, like 20 traps along the side of um, a lake, I think it was. They'd watched and then they'd figured out with a tool, <laughs> a stick, how to set those traps off without actually getting inside them themselves. And it let off a great big bang. And they thought, oh, that's quite fun. And they, they started setting all these traps off. And of course, that meant that the traps wouldn't catch any predators and that the poor person that set them had to reset them. The Kia thought it was hilarious. But uh, there was a bit of work done so that Kia could no longer do that. And they offset the door of the trap so that it was not a straight line through to the trap itself. So that if you put a stick in, 
it had to go around the corner. So some some intelligence there, um, working out how to redesign the track to make it Kia proof, naughty Kias. Uh, a question here: Do they superglue the bands too close to close them? Up or do they super glue the band to the kokako? Good question because I had a photo of this in my diary and I did say that it was very important not to get the glue on the bird or the person to be glued to the bird. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot of care is taken when putting those bands on because you've got one chance to do it and you know you need to do it right. And yes, it is super gluing the band to close it. Yeah, we don't want it to be stuck to the leg of the bird. You can imagine. Yeah, would you like to have a band that's stuck to your skin? No, you know, it's gonna cause a real problem. And so when, when the birds um, going through the forest from branch to branch, they don't wanna be um, have anything that's gonna get in their way or stop them from being able to move as quickly as they need. And so, yeah, absolutely. The super gluing of the, of the bands is to make sure they're gonna stay on. Yeah, because we want to be able to monitor them for like 10 or even 20 years. Mm. Yeah. So the, yeah. the plastic gluing onto the plastic, yeah. a little bit like sellotape going onto itself rather yeah. than onto the bird. Maybe I should add something to the caption of my photo in the diary mm. so that people don't get concerned that we're gluing birds or people to birds. <laughs> anyway, it's been fantastic fun talking to you this afternoon. I hope you've enjoyed the web conference. And now you can all unmute your microphones and say a Big goodbye. Bye, guys. See ya. Bye. And remember, you can join us again at the same time tomorrow for our final web conference. Thanks, everyone. So I'm going to.